0: Welcome to Lake Lake is Live. It is Thursday evening, November 17th, the year of our Lord, 2022. Hey, what if you're seeing exactly what they want you to see? What if you're hearing exactly what they want you to hear? We are jam We are high atop a frosty downtown Nashville, Tennessee. We're on the air a little bit earlier than normal because I've got to be at the airport in like under two hours. So we've got we to hurry, but we've got to do it responsibly and that we will do tonight. We've got upset alerts. I've got several games that we need to look at. We have got a, just a loaded mailbag. Dare I say jam-packed is the mailbag tonight. We're going everywhere from coaching searches to staff moves to some cultural issues, which is code for you've lost too many games most of the time. Uh, We've got recruiting wars going on, best bets. I've got a lot of stuff to get to, and somehow we're going to do it in about an hour. Toulouse, France is tuned in. That is a fact because I just saw it in the live chat. Pikeville, Kentucky, a little more believable, also tuned in. Gainesville, Georgia, Pompano Beach, Florida. We are, as I sit here right now, just after 5.30 in the Central Time Zone on Thursday, less than 300 away, less than 300 subs away from 150,000. We are so close that if you listen to this tomorrow, you can go ahead and celebrate with us. I think we've already surpassed it. I can't, I mean, I can believe it actually. Some others in the building, Bradley, may have doubted you. I didn't doubt you. We, we set the goal for New Year's Day, remember that, like three weeks ago, and all of a sudden now you're doing it before Thanksgiving. So I want to preemptively thank you, but let's go ahead and get it over the finish line, because then the next goal is, what, Colin, a million, I guess? Yeah. So 150,000 subs. Ironically, on the night where I fly to LA, where we were when we hit 100,000 subs. Look at God. Unbelievable. All right, let's go upset alert time. We do this every Thursday night. We put a scale 1 to 10. How concerned am I for the favorites in these games? Do you know Bedlam is this weekend? Oklahoma and Oklahoma State? I said that in the reverse order because OU's the home team here. The line on the game, seven and a half. Sooners by seven and a half. And I was doing a hit with someone in radio earlier this week, and they said, could you explain this line to me? And my only explanation is Oklahoma State's offense has evaporated. No one knows where it went. It's like a missing persons report, but 11 persons and the production that they were producing earlier this year. You know, Lincoln Riley was a head coach of one of these teams in this game last year. Some people tell you time flies. But that feels like about 17 years ago that Lincoln Riley was last coaching in Norman, and they lost this game, did Oklahoma last year, 37-33. I don't know what to think, really. We get in that time of year every year, the second-to-last and last weekends of the regular season. You never know the level of play you're getting. From a team because you never really know what their mentality collectively is once their preseason goals and even their midseason recalibrated goals are off the table. You hope that they just fight because they're competitors. And Mike Gundy's program has always done that. I just think that's why this number is where it is. But Oklahoma just went and lost to West Virginia last week. Uh, point spreads aren't always indicative of what you just did. I understand all that. But I guess the way I'm going to sum it up is I feel a little better about where Oklahoma is right now. But this is about upset alert meter and about how likely it is to happen. i got to throw an 8 on this because I have no feel for the game. We certainly didn't bet it earlier this week. I have a slight, slight lean to Oklahoma, but that's about it, slight lean. Either one of these teams could win 31-13, to 13 and I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked at all. So with that in mind, I'm going to put an 8. That is, a, that is a, that's a paper popper of an upset number there. Who does LSU play? Quick, everybody, who does LSU play this weekend? They play UAB. Huh, what's that number? Oh, try 14 and a half. LSU minus 14 and a half. And you think, ooh, that's a typo, right? Surely the SEC championship-bound LSU Tigers against Woeful at times this year. UAB, gotta be favored by more than that, right? No, that's wrong. They're not on anyone's radar. This game's not on anyone's radar outside of the two fan bases. I know that, you know that. Most of you LSU fans, if you're being real with yourselves, you're talking amongst each other, you sat down at the barbecue joint for lunch today, and you said, if we can stay healthy this weekend, no one is even paying attention to the possibility of a loss. If we can stay healthy this weekend, and then we can go dish it out to a and next weekend, we give ourselves a chance to make the playoff. An outside chance, maybe, who knows, but a chance. And here's the thing, you don't need to be talking like that when you're only favored by two scores in your home building. The biggest crime that's been committed, though, between either one of these two teams happened much earlier in the year. Now, Colin, I know you've got LSU's schedule up there. I'm going to ask you, do you have UAB's schedule? Just by chance. Oh my goodness, he's got it. I don't want you to look at week one, not week two, not week three. UAB committed the cardinal sin. They lost to food in week four. They fell to rice, 28 to 24. They're not beating LSU. I'm not going to allow it to happen. You do not lose to food and beat a division winner in the SEC. Uh, By the way, UAB is 0-4 straight up and against the number this year on the road. So I'm going to take the Tigers to win. I'm going to put a two on this. Now twos don't normally correlate to lines that are only 14 and a half. I feel good. I think Brian Kelly's got them locked in. You want to do a little research? I don't have time to right now. Go check out his record as a head coach in November. He gets teams locked in. They don't really lose focus. Even back at Notre Dame, they didn't. Illinois at Michigan. Kind of making an executive decision on this game. I'm going to tell you that it's a three for me on the upset alert meter. For those unfamiliar with what happened today, Brett Bielema found out he lost his mom. That's the head coach now at Illinois. So our condolences go out to him and his family. I'm not, as a result, going to really break the game down much. I'll tell you that I think Michigan is favored here. Obviously, they should be favored, but they've won 17 straight as a double-digit favorite. Michigan got in this little situation last year where we saw that Ohio State game coming and they were playing with no margin for error. It's the same this year, only they haven't lost a game, but we all know there's no margin for error here. And not only did they play the way they needed to before the Ohio State game, immediately afterwards, they just roasted Iowa in the Big Ten championship game. So I don't think focus is an issue. There is no prayer they're overlooking Illinois. At least I don't think they are. It may take them a little while to put them away because Illinois is a very good defensive team. So is Michigan. So it may look like a rock fight for a half or you know a little over a half. I think they'll eventually pull away. And um, I, think, I think Michigan wins this game. I'm going to put a three on it. So about the same I put with LSU, thereabouts. Let's go to the next game, though, because this is one that has my focus. Florida. Last week, drug South Carolina. Florida now goes on the road this week to play the University of Nashville. You might know them as Vanderbilt. Happy November, everyone, by the way. I have concerns. I've been singing Billy Napier's praises for like a month now. I have concerns about this. They've been playing really good ball ever since the Georgia game. They lost to Georgia. Then they beat A&M. They beat South Carolina. Neither of those games are close. And then they've got Vanderbilt this week. Now, I think it's a good thing for both teams that Vandy won last week. Good for Vandy because it's validation that, yes, they are indeed improving. It's good for Florida because you need to have your attention on them this weekend. And had Vanderbilt not won against Kentucky last week, I would have even greater concerns. As it stands, Vandy's one of our best bets of the week. We got him at plus 14. Mid-30s at kickoff. And I'm never a fan of these Florida teams having to play in this. I don't know what in the world you guys did to prepare for it this week, but you're probably not ready for it. Now, here's the plus side. Florida is so superior athletically, up to and including that guy, 15 there, at quarterback, that you could render all that a moot point, but I do think it matters. Um, If it's any consolation, it should warm up into the 40s by the time the second half rolls around, so there's that. Vandy can bleed you. They ran it for over 230 last week, so if you are lazy or sloppy, I guess is the right word, early on, if you turn the ball over, which Florida has not done hardly at all lately, but if you do it, if it were to happen out of the blue, this would be the spot for it to happen, Vandy can shave two possessions off of what you otherwise would have gotten in this game and just make you execute at a higher level. I'm putting a five on it. There you go. This is another game with about a two touchdown spread. And you see I'm a little more elevated on the upset alert meter here. It's a five. Let's pay attention to it. I don't, here's the worst part. The worst part is when a Southern team, this is about as close as you come in the South to playing in Big Ten weather. You go to either Arkansas or sometimes Lexington or Nashville in late November. That's about as close as it comes. And you mark my words. If Florida were to get down at all, you know what the camera shot is. The camera shot is about two or three either DBs or skill position players, perimeter players, smallest guys on your team. Especially, Don't even let me find the special teams guys on the sideline. And they're just all standing together to conserve body heat, and they're lifeless, and there is no emotion whatsoever. Can't have that. Can't have that. Jump on them early if you're Florida. I got a five on that one. And last but not least, speaking of the all of a sudden off everyone's radar Kentucky Wildcats, they are at home as a 22 and a half point dog against the dogs of Georgia. Kirby Smart's right. I heard him talking earlier this week. He said, don't care what they did last week, we'll get a totally different version of them. I do believe that. I think you'll get just an, um, a surprisingly inspired effort from Kentucky. And I'm not teeing the upset up at all because the problem is you can be inspired and focused and zoned in all you want to. You still have to execute. Kentucky can't execute offensively at a high enough level to challenge Georgia unless Georgia helps them out again and again and then again and probably at least one more time again. So, absent that, and I can't predict that, and absent, here's the other thing that could come into play. Theoretically, this should be a double do down spot for Georgia. They had a do-up spot against Florida. They deliver. Then they have the Tennessee game. Then they go on the road to Mississippi State. And notice all of these boxes are getting checked. Green check mark for Georgia. This was the stretch every one of us looked at in the preseason. If Georgia drops a game, it will be in this stretch. And so you've got a fourth week now. Presumably, if some of the best competition that you're facing all year, it's the only back-to-back road spot that they've had all year. So that stuff could matter. And that's not even Kentucky. That's just dynamics. That could matter. I think, quite frankly, that's why this number is not 24 or more. So I'm going to put a, a 2.5, not even a 3, a 2.5 on the upset alert meter there. I have told you, what, two shows in a row now, and this will make the third and final. Big week in Tampa, big week in Barbersville, West Virginia. Brand new Academy Sports and Outdoors are opening. You know the rules. I'm not going to reread them to you if you prove to me that you attend the grand opening, That's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, if you prove to me you're there, at either one of those locations, at any point this weekend, 10 of you, randomly selected, are going to take home a chalai of supremacy, or chalice, since that is technically singular. Here you go, this is what you need to know. Tampa, Florida, first academy location in Tampa. It's like a whole new world for you guys. The address, 7230 US19 North. That's in Pinellas Park, by the way. Or is it Pinellas Park? Either way, it's 7230 U.S. 19 North. In Barbersville, West Virginia, 30 Tanyard Station Drive, and that is in the Tanyard Station Shopping Center, whom's amongst us, hasn't frequented that place a time or two. 30 Tanyard Station Drive. These people, these fine folks at Academy, have looked at our show about a year and a half ago and said, we're going to take care of you. And then they raised their wing, and then we came under them, and they have taken care of us ever since. And so whenever they open a new location, this is how we celebrate it as a people, as, as an entire group here. Because the um, show wouldn't even be available if it wasn't for Academy. Anything you need, they'll have. And especially at those grand openings, they give a ton of free stuff away anyway. If you can't get there in person, academy.com. And if you haven't had one of these grand openings yet, these aren't the last ones. Everybody else is shuttering their doors and Academy. Got a new, new store popping up every other day. I asked you to submit some questions for the mailbag earlier today. Really early, since I knew we had an early show to get to. And boy, did you. I appreciate you guys being tuned in. If you're already watching the live show, welcome to an early edition of Late Kick. And number two, click that thumbs up button for me. Because when you start earlier, it throws people out of whack. I know, you, I know some of you are gonna show up at like seven tonight and say, what happened? Well, you can watch the replay. But we dove into the mailbag and we got several juicy questions here. So let's start it off. Xavier hits us up and says, Is Jimbo Fitcher a bad culture hire? His last days at Florida State were tumultuous, and now at a and there are players quitting, getting suspended. Talks of massive amounts of an exodus. I misread that one. A mass exodus in the transfer portal after the season, not to mention no bowl game. From Wenatchee, Washington. Culture's a funny word, Xavier. Um... I'm going to make a little generic kind of statement here, because I really up front want to tell you, I don't think a whole lot of people know the internal workings of the a and program. And most people who know the internal workings are given that access in exchange for keeping their mouth shut. There are exceptions. There are some very plugged in people around a and athletics, and I'm not suggesting otherwise. I'm just saying we've entered that time of year where you get generic consensus all over the place. And what I mean by generic consensus, you hear it in recruiting all the time. Oh, so and so was bought and paid for. Really? How do you know? Oh, you can tell. How do you know though? Well, I mean, look at look at this, look at the details around his recruitment. But how do you know? And what happens is, one person says something, then three people say something, then a hundred people say something, and things just get accepted as truth, absent any real details or facts. Now, sometimes they happen to be true. Sometimes it is. Mm, what word do we want to use here? I think we know what word we want to use here. At least it is greatly exaggerated, let's put it that way, to be safe. And so, yeah, I think there are a lot of problems around the a and program. A culture problem, Jimbo Fisher being a culture problem. No, I'm not ready to say that. He has an antiquated offense problem, more so than anything there. And that has poisoned the well with the specific way they have chosen to recruit at Texas a and with this last class. Because as we talked about two weeks ago, if you dive into the NIL recruiting approach, you're totally free to do so. But you do so, or at least you better do so, under the notion that you're going to have to operate a little bit different way than what a classical recruiting approach would have you operating under. In the classical recruiting approach, you go recruit kids, heads up against other programs, and the ones who want to come to your program, they come to your program, and then they either start as freshmen if they're superstars or they redshirt, but I mean, largely they're there because they wanna be there because the program attracted them. In the NIL age, money attracts a lot of kids. And it just so happens that Texas A&M is where they play in this case, but they're not attached as much as maybe a kid would have been a generation ago. This is the part where someone's gonna take this out of context and say kids shouldn't be paid, according to JP. No, that's not what I'm saying at all, Uh, quite the opposite. But what I am saying, is if you traffic in it as heavy as a and has chosen to do, which, again, is well within their right to do, you're going to have to understand there is an immediate return that is expected from a lot of those freshmen. Here's the bad part. Even if they haven't earned it, what about that? Now, you can look at that and say, shame on that kid. He needs to sit over in the corner and take his medicine. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. When you paid the kid to come there, doesn't work the kid can go anywhere and get paid to play football, and all of those freshmen have the same thing in common—they have not burned their penalty-free transfer yet. So they came in your program. This is the case everywhere. a and is just the one I'm talking about. They come in your program, and whereas you used to shut the door behind them and de- deadbolt it, you have no access to the door at all anymore. Period. And they leave the door wide open. Sometimes leave one foot out the door, and they say, "Let me see if I like it in here." aka my true freshman season. And if I don't like it, aka if I don't play, then I'm out. Oh, I'm taking the money with me, by the way. That's the culture problem. That's, now, if you want to call that a culture problem, you can define it however you want to. That's just the reality of the situation because I have a strong suspicion that if they would have won games this year because they were running a better offensive system, then they would have had less disgruntled players which would have led to less of the off-field drama and turmoil, some of it you've heard about, a lot of it you hadn't heard about. And therefore, I wouldn't be fielding questions about whether or not they have a culture problem out there. But that's not the way it panned out. Therefore, this is what we're talking about with Jimbo Fisher. The biggest question around there, at least to me, it's not culture, it's, it, that's a factor, but it's not culture nearly as much as what's he gonna do with his offense? What's he gonna do with offensive coordinator? I think you'd be shocked at what a 10-win season would do for culture around College Station, Texas. Shocked. On an unrelated note, we'll be there Monday and Tuesday. Next question. Dustin hit us up. He said, what's the most accurate metric to gauge how valuable a win is at the time it happens versus how it looks towards the end of the season? Beautifully worded question, Dustin. Beautifully worded. You know we talk about this all the time on the show. Let me take a sip. This has some caffeine in it tonight. Uh, I know I'm going to get fired up answering this anyway, so we might as well well Venn diagram it here. Dustin is asking, how do we define the value of the win when it happens? And that kind of goes over a lot of folks' heads. Not because you're too dumb to grasp it, but it just doesn't stand out the way it should stand out. He's saying what I've said for a long time, or he's asking what I've said for a long time. What I've said for a long time is, I can't stand the concept that I could play you in week one, everyone knowing you're a top 10 team, and then I injure your left tackle, and your middle linebacker also tears his ACL in a non-contact situation. I beat you 23-13, and then you have some more attrition later in the year, and you just end up Precipitously dropping in terms of the caliber of team you are. You end up being seven and five on the year. And at the end of the campaign, I'm told that my win over you is not a quality win, in large part because the hurting I put on you when I beat you led to you falling off a cliff. That is not the way that you most accurately gauge someone's strength of schedule. So, what I've always at least championed. Uh, if if nothing else, is at least defining the value of a win when you play the game, okay? So if I play you today, I want to define the value of that win. Now, if there are extreme circumstances where it is just blatantly obvious a team was overrated by everyone, including odds makers, six weeks later, we can go back and we can devalue that a little bit. Or if you beat a team and they turn out to look a whole lot better than they were in week one, A whole lot better than anyone thought. That's fine, too. Um, But what I would love to do to answer the question is I would love to take the AP ranking format out of this entirely, take any ranking format out of it entirely, and what I would love to do is I would love to take Vegas Oddsmakers, and I would love them to submit a power rating each week of how they rate teams, the very chart with which they use to put out point spreads. And I would love to use that and check out the teams you play, and I would love to define the value of your wins that way. And I would love to determine your strength of schedule that way, because it's the truest metric out there. The Big 12 right now, the conversation around the Big 12, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, is just a hot mess, because people are shocked that the value of a lot of TCU's wins has gone down. Why? Why? because the teams they've beaten have lost more games. We're talking about a conference that plays a round robin schedule. So it's mathematical certainty. Every week you have to have what what are there 10 teams there. You're going to have 5 wins and 5 losses. Those 5 losses have to go somewhere. So it's impossible for all of your wins to maintain their value. That doesn't mean that the actual challenge you had that Saturday was any less difficult. So I'm sitting on this desk actually about 2 weeks ago and I made what I thought And everyone in the building, sans one person, thought it was just a phenomenal metaphor. And I said, I'm sitting over there, Emily Proud sitting right here. And I say to her, if I took a brand new Dr. Pepper out of my bag and I popped the top on it and I chugged five sips of it, what would happen? My throat would be on fire because I'm chugging soda that just got open. So it's really, really carbonated. Okay. So then I take the can. It's, it's half full now, and I leave it on the desk, and we go away for three weeks. And then we come back three weeks later, and you chug the other five sips, and you have no problem with it. It would be pretty dumb to look over at me and say, why did your throat burn so much? Th- this is flat. There's no challenge at all to drinking this. Or could it be that even though that can looks the same on the outside, what's on the inside is a totally different product than when I drank it three weeks ago? It happens with soda. You don't think that can happen with football teams, but I don't trust AP voters to gauge that. I don't trust the playoff committee to gauge that. I would trust oddsmakers to gauge that. That's what I would love to do. And of course, because I would love to do that, we'll probably never do it. But you tell me, honestly, does anyone out there, even if you don't agree with me, do you really feel safe that a committee full of people that may or may not be watching all the games on Saturday, is able to tell you what the value on a game you played two and a half months ago should have, and it's a sliding scale week to week. Does anybody in their right mind really think that is the most accurate way to judge someone's strength of schedule? There's no way. There's no way anyone thinks that. You may think you have a better solution than mine. Be my guest. That's what the comment section's for. But there's no way that anyone believes That someone telling me, well, look, that win, when you played them in week two, it once upon a time was good. Then it got great for two weeks, uh, but now it's not good at all because of what happened the last four weeks. And your players and your coaches are sitting there saying, nothing changed about the game we played. Nothing changed about the challenge we faced that Saturday. Like I told you, I get worked up because I, this is one of those situations where I just know I'm right. It's not even opinion. And I can't do anything about it. Next up, let's, let's continue moving. Jay, he said, checking in from Roebuck, South Carolina. Mario versus Napier in recruiting. Who is winning the war so far? We're talking about Mario Cristobal down at Miami. Billy Napier at Florida. Florida's been hot now. I, I need only direct your attention to a few recruitments. Like Rashada, Jaden Rashada's recruitment, recently. That's a quarterback out of Pittsburgh, California. Fools a lot of people. And I remember it feels like 10 years ago, but really it wasn't. His commitment comes down to, among other programs, Miami and Florida. And he commits to Miami. And Florida was all worked up. Man, they thought they had him. I was in this building, I remember, when the announcement came down, I think. And I remember how that was the end of the world, and I remember how there was a lot of talk that Billy Napier is going to get run in recruiting, and Florida just doesn't have it put together like Miami. Miami's going to be a machine, and Florida better get their act together. Now, to put a finer point on that, I came on this show, and I said some things that some of you think I should regret. I don't regret it at all. I meant every word I said then, and I think it was valid. Today, I look back on it and think it was valid. And Colin, I didn't give you the clip, but what the clip essentially was, was me saying, I think Billy Napier's the right guy for the job. I got no doubt about Napier's ability. But what I do think is, I think Florida, as a collective, pun kind of intended, as a collective, are about two steps behind in the NIL game. It's fixable, but I think they're about two steps behind right now. I believe that was the case at the time. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think that Gator Collective down there has their act together. How do we know that? Well, last week, all of a sudden, Jaden Rashada, who once broke Florida's heart to commit to Miami, decommitted from Miami and committed to Florida. Now, this is one little salvo. It's not little. I mean, he's a very highly rated quarterback, but it's one example of why there's no skill in me answering this question. The question is, who's winning the war? These are like little micro battles within larger battles that make up the war which is, by the way, not a war that's going to be won over one recruiting cycle. And also, the sands continue to shift under everyone's feet like every day. I would, look, here's what I've learned. I put this out when Rashada flipped the other day, and I'll tell you guys again. It's okay to feel good about landing big commitments, by all means. I mean, our folks over on Swamp 24-7, wave the pom-poms. Just be careful how publicly you celebrate Because this will not be the last high-profile flip. You will eventually be victimized by one of these. Anyone who's been around recruiting long enough understands it wasn't for the faint of heart 10 years ago. Now, it will be that times 10 because of what you're allowed to do. And there's really, look, I'm telling you, I know folks who are the most plugged in in the world in this recruiting game. The most plugged in in the world. Steve Wiltfong, I think, talks to about 200 head coaches a day. It's wild. I have sat there and tried to have dinner with this man, and I can't get in a word because every one of the biggest names in the sport are hitting him up. And so my point is, sometimes even Wiltfong gets taken by surprise by this stuff. And therefore, I'm telling you, there's no way I'm about to tell you who I think is winning a recruiting war. Hey, you know who's winning the recruiting war? Bama. That's who's running the recruiting war, because they're still lapping everybody. They're probably going to finish overwhelmingly with the number one class again this cycle. I just think that now it is getting a little more difficult to just go into South Florida and get anyone Nick Saban wants. So overall, for the sport, that's a good thing. I've, I've long maintained my stance on how recruiting in Florida, Texas, and California could level out the playing field more than any playoff expansion. So I'm not going down that road tonight. I don't have time. But I... I don't think that Miami has uh, made their last move here in this cycle either, let me just say. And so I think that they're going to finish pretty strongly. And here's what you need to remember. This is not the old model. In the old model, you know, you had the old adages, follow the visits, uh, follow the relationships. None of that anymore. None of it. It is who can walk in your room at the 11th hour with the best NIL offer. That's it. That's recruiting. You don't have to feel good about it. I don't particularly love it, but that's recruiting, which means there are no tea leaves to read sometimes. Like, we're coming up on early signing day. We'll be down in Fort Lauderdale, and we'll do blowout coverage of early signing day over on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel, which you should be subscribed to, by the way, if you haven't already. We'll have stuff that day, I can guarantee you, that comes out of the blue, and it just stuns everybody. And you got folks, I mean, we got Andrew Ivans and Cooper Patagno and Singletary, and We got Will Fong. I don't even want to name names because I'll forget someone. We have an entire team that's followed kids since they were freshmen in high school, and they get stunned at the last minute. Why? Because that's how NIL recruiting works. So I think that both should be relatively happy with where they are right now. But I think Florida has a particular amount of momentum and a particular amount of confidence because a lot of your greatest concerns back in spring have been eased. You know, I think it kind of mirrors what they're doing on the field right now. They lost to Georgia, and they've played great since then. Got to keep it going, but they started off bumpy in recruiting this cycle. They have performed great since then. So it's going to be really fun to watch. I love that Mike Norvell and Florida State are just left out of that, and yet they're playing better football than anybody in that state right now. Let's just keep an eye. Just, you, never, you never know, the winds of change in NIL recruiting are very, very sudden and very unexpected. Uh, let's continue to move on here. Good mailbag so far. Jonathan hit us up from West Palm Beach, Florida. He said, which conference has the best set of stadiums?" Good question. Because well, that means more than one. I, at first, I was just going to tell you the SEC, but then I thought about the different criteria you may have. See, Jonathan, you may be a scenery guy. And then we we may have like Jeffrey over here, and he may be a stark adherence to tradition guy. And then we may have Megan over here, and she just loves the rabid, insane atmosphere. My answer is a different conference for all three of you, is my point, because I like a combination of all of them. So I'll start with the Big Ten. The Big Ten laps the field when it comes to the adherence to tradition blended with the incredible in-stadium atmosphere. We just showed B-roll of Michigan Stadium, for example. What I love, and I grew up in the South, so I never experienced it until I finally got to go up there. What I love about Notre Dame Stadium, Michigan, um, is something that you never think about until you've been all over the country and you go to all these places. They forego millions of dollars in potential in-stadium ad sales to keep the in-stadium environment pristine. In other words, they don't put 47 different logos all over the place that companies have paid for, in other words, advertising, they say, nope, we know we could have that money, but we're okay. We're doing good enough. So we don't need to put an airline over here and a soft drink company over here and a car distributor over here. We're good. Keep your money. We'll be okay. I love that. Love it. Plenty of places operate under a different philosophy. Many, in fact, most places don't have a choice. Michigan can afford to roll however they want to. So can Notre Dame. So can a lot of these bigger northern powers because they have such massive alumni bases. They don't need advertising dollars to meet their budget. Some other places do. Okay. The question is not who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong. The question is who do I like the most. So these are mega stadiums. A lot of them are over 100,000 seats. Uh, the fan bases are fully invested. It's a great game day atmosphere, and you have a pristine environment in a lot of these stadiums that I appreciate. In the SEC. I think you have the best of all worlds. I think they're some of the most impressive venues in America. There is not more passion anywhere in the country. Uh, And that includes the Big Ten. The Big Ten's insane. Uh, There are places now, there are places like Ohio State and Michigan in a couple of weeks. That's as good as anything in the country. Penn State, Whiteout. That's as good as anything in the country. I'm not saying there aren't moments in the Big Ten. I'm saying as a collective, 1 through 14, about to be 1 through 16, the game day atmospheres in the SEC are unmatched. And they also have large venues. And they're also very loud. And there's also a lot of tradition. And also a lot of those buildings are very old. So they have the best of everything. But I'll give you a surprise contender here, since I'm about to head out there in like an hour. The Pac-12, which I have finally gotten to see a lot more of, if you're into the scenery, if you're into the backdrop, if you're into... There being more to a college football game than just what's going on right there inside that bowl, the Pac 12 is for you. I was up at Alton a couple of weeks ago. Brilliant backdrop. Everyone's got mountains. Look at Cal. There won't be a meaningful football game played in that building in the next century or so, but man, what a surrounding atmosphere. Have not been able to go to Arizona State. We'll be at the Rose Bowl this weekend. Been out there before. I think we all understand how picturesque the San Gabriel Mountains can be. Also, Utah. You know, Utah's a program that has not always been in the Pac 12, obviously. So some of the older football, college football fans, they don't automatically, Utah, Pac 12, Utah, Pac 12. That doesn't snap in your mind like that. But Utah's got the same thing going for them. And even though Brigham Young is not in the Pac 12, I'm just going to throw them in for good measure uh, because they're kind of out there. They're in the same state as Utah and they've got that, they got that insane backdrop as well. So it depends on where you want to go. It depends on what you're into. It could be Big 10. It could be PAC 12. It could be SEC. I think most people would lean SEC, but I can make an argument for any of them. All right, next up, let's keep it rolling. What do we got? 605. Okay, we're on pace. John from Gallatin, Tennessee. He said, How much credit do you want for Greg Sankey saying the SEC will likely get rid of divisions? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. But the first thing we need to unpack is yes, I was right. Good for me. Greg Sankey was speaking today over in South Carolina and actually our buddy Mark Ryan who I do a hit with every week via radio good friend of the program he actually had a quote from Sankey earlier today and Sankey was talking about future scheduling and he said apparently and I'm paraphrasing he said the future plan once OU and Texas come here and you have a 16 team conference the plan is to just do away with divisions and just have One division, I guess. You have one through 16. You have a conference. There are no divisions in there. And we're going to, I guess, take the best two teams, regardless of where they play, and we're going to put them in the SEC championship game. And if you watch this program, you're already saying, wow, that sounds familiar. And yes, that's because we have lobbied for that for quite a while. Uh, We're not the only ones, but yes, we've been very vocal about this. So it's good to hear that people in Birmingham have been tuned in. The issue here is as basic as it gets. For those of you wondering why this is such a big issue, the issue is very basic. Teams don't play each other enough. It's that simple. Georgia has still not played a college football game at Texas A&M since A&M came to the SEC. When did that happen? A decade ago. They came here in 2012. And I still have not seen Georgia play at A&M. I've only seen A&M go to Georgia once. I was there. It rained. It was not the best of environments that day. So teams don't play each other enough. The other thing that immediately comes to mind is, okay, well, how's this going to work? And it's like a three or four pronged kind of series of questions I would have. Number one, obviously, this would be a far more dynamic scheduling model, wherein you're playing every other team in the conference a lot more frequently. I think a lot of you are wondering the same thing I was when I heard this. Okay, well, are you protecting rivalry games? How many rivalry games are you protecting? For example, you know Bama plays Auburn every year. Bama also plays Tennessee every year. The Bama-LSU rivalry has come to be one of the most predominant rivalries and and premier rivalries in this conference over the last 15 years with a few years' exceptions. Are you going to keep all three of them? I don't necessarily know that that's going to be the case. Uh, And if that's the price that you pay, for moving ahead with with what I would absolutely call progress in this case, then so be it. I don't think there's going to be a world where Bama doesn't play Auburn every year. I doubt there's a world where Bama doesn't play Tennessee every year. There may be a world where Bama doesn't play LSU every year. We'll see. Uh, The second thing is, are they going to be smart about schedule releases? This is a message to the entire country. You can just listen as I speak to the SEC. Look, if you guys are going to go ahead and overhaul everything else about this sport, In some cases, things that don't need to be touched. In this case, this does need to be touched. But if you're going to overhaul everything else, can you please get a grip on scheduling and understand you don't need to release them 10 years in the future or even two years in the future? Could you give me a schedule release event in February before spring practice? Can we do it, in this case, what the NFL does? Because even I am not so blind as to admit there are a few things that the NFL does better than college football. And one of them is they don't, The Bengals don't know they're playing the Chiefs in 2027. That's not normally the way that works. The way it works is you tune in on schedule release night, and they tell you who you're going to play that year. And then you get ready, and then you play the games, and somehow they make it work. In college football, apparently you need to know who you're playing in 2037 for some unknown reason. So I also wonder if they're going to get a hold of that, be a leader, not a follower. The third thing. And it kind of correlates with what I just said. Is it randomized? Or is there going to be a model that's laid out, therefore I still know who I'm playing well down the road, so there's no, there's no point in schedule release, I guess other than the order that the games are going to be in? And fourth, which is really first, because this is the argument they're really having, are you going to have eight or nine on the conference slate? That's probably where the bulk of the argument still is. I, I've... Tend to believe Greg Sankey had far less pushback on switching to this kind of model than he does on whether they're going to play eight or nine conference games. So those are some questions. Um, no to answer the first, even though I have every right to claim credit, I don't think I'm going to claim credit for this one. We'll we'll probably bump into a few more proper predictions in the near future. So I'll I'll let this one slide. But thank you, thank you to everyone in the SEC league office. Uh, next up. The Traveler asked thoughts on Nebraska's coaching search since it's been so quiet. Well, that's normally a good thing. That normally means progress is being made. The general feel reached out to a couple of folks today, went over to our Nebraska site, Husker 24 7. They've done excellent work over there. I mean, if you need updates on this, our Nebraska site has it covered. Multiple updates this week, Husker 24 7. So I check that out. But the general feel is they're going to make a higher right after the end of the regular season. I think they play Iowa. I think that's their last game. So that's next week. It, I keep saying end of the regular season. That's next week. Now, according to our folks over at Husker 24-7, Trev Alberts thought to be down to three candidates. I've heard this a couple of places. Of course, you don't know who the three candidates are. The names that are being thrown around, and I believe there is at least some validity to all these, Jeff Munken, who's at Army, and I heard his name last week from someone who is not remotely associated with the Nebraska search. They just kind of have knowledge of what's happening. You got Munken at Army. A lot of times if you dig way into these guys past and where they've been and some relationships and connections, all of a sudden you stumble upon one that makes you go, wait a minute, that explains why he's being considered for this job. That's all I'll say. Just do some digging. Uh, Matt Rule. Now, that's a guy that doesn't have a job right now, got fired from the Panthers, so he's just out there, and I think he's in play here. Uh, Either Kansas coach. Now, I knew both of these guys would be mentioned, but how serious? How serious? Chris Kleiman, for example, is at Kansas State right now. They may very well be in the Big 12 championship game. How serious are those candidates? And you're getting kind of mixed results from Nebraska fans, at least, when you mention either one of those names. Hmm, that's all I'll say. Hmm, I like both of them. So, I I mean, I wouldn't mind Leipold. I wouldn't mind Kleiman. Either one of them is a very, very good fit for me. But I know there are some mixed emotions out there. I just think it's funny that when you talk about Lance Leipold, you also have the Wisconsin job that is even more quietly still open. They're going to give that thing to Jim Leonard up there, who is the interim right now, the defensive coordinator, or are they going to offer it to a guy like Lance Leipold? And then the follow-up is, how does a guy like Lance Leipold balance, how does he weigh one versus the other? Which job is more attractive to him? And then you got to think about the fact that he's got attachments. We we all have attachments here or there. So if it came down to it, I don't think there's a strong feel. uh, There's a feel out there. I don't think there is a lot of knowledge as to where he'd lean. If it was Nebraska, heads up against Wisconsin. there, There are reasons to feel good about either one of them. Gary Patterson's name is still floating around. He's just hanging out in Austin, hanging out at Texas. It sounds like all of these are established head coaches. So it sounds like whoever they hire is going to have a pedigree, a track record as a head coach. But then there's always that dark horse coordinator out there somewhere. There's always that guy who is, who is viewed by someone as a hot rising up and comer, and he's going to get a job somewhere eventually anyway. Let's let it be us. Let's be one year too early instead of one year too late. And I don't know who that would be, full disclosure. I'm just saying the Nebraska coaching search is still pretty wide open. All right, next up. Uh, Good, okay, we're still on pace. Here we go. Chance from Emporia, Kansas says, Do you think that TCU is struggling in the playoff rankings because the Big 12 brands, Texas and OU, are having down years? How will the committee view the Big 12 in the 2024 and beyond when the conference doesn't have the big brands anymore? Well, Chance, it may not matter because you may have an expanded playoff by them, and it sounds like every Power 5 conference is getting at least a team in there. I mean, if you're taking your six highest-rated conference champs, it sounds like you're going to be gifted at least one spot whether your conference deserves it or not. Now, outside of that, I think your question is valid. I think that TCU is a good case study right now for how little respect that conference is going to get off the bat when you lose Texas and OU. Now, if you're, a, if you're a newcomer to this party, you may be looking at this and saying, wait a second, I've watched the Big 12 this year, and Texas has been not great at all. Oklahoma's been even worse. Why should those two being down delude this product? TCU, Kansas State, like those teams have looked like the better teams. Yes, friends, you're right, and that's your problem. You're way too new to this. You don't understand how built up that Texas brand gets every year. Now, Oklahoma has fulfilled their end of the deal. I'm not going to knock the Sooners, but you don't understand the, the gross misconception that as Texas goes, so too does the Big 12. But yet, that is the either conscious or subconscious feel from a lot of people who have sway in this whole matter. And that is the problem that TCU fans are faced with right now. Let's be clear, this is not a problem yet, and it won't be a problem. If TCU wins their next three games, and that is at Baylor, Iowa State, conference title game, they're good. No amount of anti hornfrog frog bias could hurt them because an undefeated Big 12 champ will be in the playoff. If they lose one game, if they lose 30-29, to 29, to Baylor this week, it's going to break loose. It's going to be bad, and they could be in line to get the shaft. I have heard a lot of talk about the Big 12 this week from a lot of different places and a lot of people whose opinions, quite frankly, I don't necessarily respect when it comes to this sport. Love hearing them talk about pro games, not just football, but maybe not so much college football. Let me be careful with my words here. Look at me being responsible. We have got to get people who only casually cover the sport to stop talking about gambling. One of the worst things that has ever happened is also one of the best things that's ever happened. One of the best things that ever happened to college football is the legalization of sports betting. I mean, I got 10 different apps I could pull up right now in Nashville. When you drive around downtown, there are billboards that show live up-to-the-minute odds on games. And if you live in a state where it's not legalized yet, it will blow your mind when it does get legalized. But anyway, that's great because it gives you the freedom to do what you were going to the Cayman Islands digitally to do in another life. But one of the worst things in the world is also that, that sports betting has proliferated even the mainstream of media in college football, and you got folks who couldn't rub two nickels together when it comes to placing a wager who are trying to talk about gambling within the context of college football. And how many times have you heard this? I just heard it twice the other day. TCU, oddsmakers say, if they played on a neutral field, would be an underdog against the top eight or nine teams in the country. It doesn't matter. And you're talking to a guy here that doesn't even rank teams. All I do is put out a power rating every week. You think I'm sounding hypocritical. I'm not. No, I am absolutely the guy who puts out a power rating, which is solely based on who I would favor against who on a neutral field every week. But do you notice what I say when I put that rating out? I say the following, and then I put it in the tweet. Power ratings are not rankings. And if you've heard me talk about them on this show, I have told you before. How you would hypothetically match up on a neutral field in a game that hasn't been played yet has no bearing on what your playoff resume or your playoff positioning should be. Point spreads are not competition. Point spreads, hypothetically, are not sports. It's just odds placed on a game that may or may not happen, depending on the matchup. Your merit is what gets you your ranking, at least that's how it's supposed to happen. These fools talking about how TCU, if they lose a game, should be out of it because odds makers say they wouldn't be favored. You'd never in a million years say that about the University of Texas. You'd never say it about Oklahoma. And the reason has nothing to do with a blind resume test, because truth be told, you people would wrap yourselves in an intellectual pretzel if you had to blind resume your own statements. If you had to blind resume your way through your own rankings, sometimes you'd find out, as it turns out, I did have some teams rank too high just because of their logo, just because of the branding. So two truths here. One of them is the committee will swear to you brands don't matter, teams don't matter, we're just judging resumes. The second truth is that's a lie. The brands absolutely matter. You, I mean, I want you to imagine a world, and this isn't a knock on Texas. Uh, it's a knock on some of the prevailing thought out there. I want you to imagine a world right now where Steve Sarkeesian has Texas 10-0. and 0. Texas 10-0. And, and they're in the driver's seat to win the Big 12 championship. I want you to imagine Texas tripping up 33-31 to 31 against Baylor this week, and then winning against Iowa State and winning the Big 12 championship game. Can you imagine the committee even giving consideration to leaving them out of the playoff? Like they will leave TCU out of the playoff with the exact same resume? These folks out here talking about gambling have no clue what they're talking about in most cases. But let me turn your logic back on you. This is, if you get in a debate like this over the next week, just do something like this. Oh, you want to talk power ratings, do you? You want to talk odds making, do you? I pulled up my numbers. You can feel free to pull up any of the most reputable models out there. They'll all look virtually the same, maybe a little discrepancy here and there. I got TCU's games they played here this year. They've won all of them. They're undefeated. They've got wins against the number 10, 13, 18, 28, 29, 30, 40, and 41st teams in the country. Their entire conference schedule consists of teams ranked in the top 45. Rated, excuse me, power rated in the top 45. Who else has that? I'm being told the Big 12's down this year. No, the Big 12 doesn't have an Alpha Georgia or Ohio State or something like that. It is a very, very good league this year. A very good league. If you'd bother to pay attention, instead of reading some website that puts out hypothetical point spreads, that's a different world. The odds-making world is a totally different world. I'm one of the people who puts out power ratings, and I will readily tell you: in no world should the Vegas odds making process Look like the college football playoff rankings process. Totally different worlds. So, yeah, TCU's probably on their way to get in the shaft unless they take care of business and win every remaining game. That'd be my advice. Uh, we got one more question here, then I've got some best bets to hand out. Parker, never let it be said that I don't ride for you guys. Our buddy Jim Dunaway from Birmingham, beautiful Birmingham, Alabama, he said, if the old Miss job opens up, do you think there's a mass exit in the portal to follow Lane like Oklahoma to USC last year? Pay attention, it's an important question here. If so, how attractive or unattractive is Ole Miss when searching for their next coach? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. So what Jim Dunaway's talking about there is very fresh in everyone's mind. Remember this time last year, it was next week last year, so 51 weeks ago. Lincoln Riley coaches his final game, as it turns out, at Oklahoma. He goes to USC, and a number of guys followed him which kind of set the precedent that in the future, if a high-profile coach leaves a program, it's just to be expected that a number of his players may look to follow him. So then we get to this potential Lane Kiffin from Ole Miss to Auburn situation, and take Quinshawn Judkins, for example, like kid's from the state of Alabama. Yeah, I'd imagine that there would be a lot of incentive for him to go from Ole Miss Auburn if his head coach and maybe members of his staff currently go to Auburn? Yeah, I could see that. I don't know how big the chunk of the roster would be, but then the second part of Jim's question is, if a big chunk of the Ole Miss roster were to follow Lane Kiffin wherever he goes, in this case it would be Auburn, does that make the Ole Miss job less attractive? Now that, I don't necessarily think so, only because you got more spots that you can fill now. And also, who's to say that the coach they bring in would have wanted every player Ole Miss had to begin with? Like Mario Cristobal right now. If I were to give him a do-over, he comes into Miami. Manny Diaz leaves. Mario Cristobal, although he'd never say this publicly, can probably find like 20 to 25 kids on that roster that he wishes would have left. The other day, the guy guy had to go on a show. I don't know if it was a coach's show or whatnot. But he had to publicly say, because there were some parents now, this is straight eighth grade nonsense, there are some parents of Miami players who are complaining about various things like playing time, (laughs) he had to go and say what I once heard my dad say at a little league meeting in baseball, and that is, if any of you are unhappy, feel free to take your kid and leave. Won't stand in your way. Like Mario Cristobal, a college head coach at the major Power 5 level, said the other day, if anyone's not happy, then feel free to come pick your kid up right now. Feel free to come get him. So who's to say that that wouldn't happen at Ole Miss? I don't know that it would. I'm just saying you would already have some churn anyway. I don't. In other words, what I'm trying to say is I don't think the quality of the Ole Miss job is going to that much deteriorate just because some kids leave with the head coach, because that's going to happen everywhere, or it's going to be assumed that it's going to happen everywhere. Uh, the Ole Miss job is still a very good job. And just because it doesn't maybe compare in someone's mind to Auburn doesn't mean it's not a good job. Because Auburn, at its best, is a top 15 job in America. So you don't have to be a top 15 job in America to still be really good. And by the way, you're in the Southeastern Conference when you're coaching at Ole Miss, which means you got access to a ton of stuff, uh, namely money every year, and you've got a really, really engaged fan base over there. There's a ton to like. Uh, very unique culture, ton to like about the old Miss job, if it comes open. And I can also tell you the backfilling process, which is what I call it, that's where a majority of the real meaty conversation is this time of year. Like, if, you, if I talk to agents, and I, I try and talk to as many of them as I can, fascinating world, man, just a fascinating world. But when I talk to them, they're not talking about Lane and Auburn right now. Because everybody knows, okay, that's either just going to happen or it's not, but everyone has spoken their piece on that. They talk more about what happens with the Ole Miss job if Lane leaves because they're already thinking two or three steps down the road of, okay, who are my guys that would be interested there? I can tell you uh, from firsthand conversations, you'd have like 20 or 25 pretty legit candidates on the phone the second Lane Kiffin cleaned out his office at Ole Miss. So, they won't hurt for finding someone legitimate. And then of course you got the putting them together of the staff and, and you got where is that coach right now and where are those coaches right now? That's the backfilling process. That's what a lot of people are already working on, and no one even knows if he's taking the Auburn job yet, at least publicly. So yeah, it's it's interesting. I was over on our site earlier today, Inside the Rebels, and I was reading some of David Johnson's work, and he made a really good point that I had frankly not thought of. He said. If they're waiting until the end of the year, let's just say this does go down, Lane Kiffin to Auburn, and they're waiting until the end of the year. Well, let's keep in mind, Ole Miss's season ends on Thanksgiving night. They play the Egg Bowl Thanksgiving night. The Iron Bowl's 48 hours after that. So we could be in a situation where by the time Auburn is playing their final game of the year, we already know. At least on the Lane Kiffin front, we already know one way or the other, and. I don't think it would be the worst look in the world if I'm calling the shots at Auburn and I do want a guy whose season wrapped up on Thanksgiving night. I'm going to maximize those 48 hours. Knowing I got a big feature spot on the CBS, the SEC on CBS Game of the Week, which the Iron Bowl is this year again, I think we'll hear something pretty quickly one way or the other after the Egg Bowl. All right, let's, uh, let's get some best bets here. And I, I've got one hour until my flight leaves. Uh, Ramen noodle express, nine and four last week. Let's pound out another winning weekend here. Penn State, minus 19 and a half. We're already on all these games. I already handed all these out. Louisville, minus four. Uh, Nebraska, plus three. Vandy, plus 14. Akron, plus 14 and a half. Utah, plus three. Okay, I'm adding two more tonight. We're going Clemson, minus 19. They're playing Miami. And Colorado, plus 31. They're playing Washington. So Clemson, minus 19, and Colorado, plus 31. Make sure you're following on Instagram, at Josh have Friday night lines, and I'm going to hand out some more, but just make sure you're tuned in. That's all I have to say tonight, because i got to run out of here now. I appreciate you guys so much. Make sure you subscribe. Get us all the way well over 150 k and I will see you back here same time Sunday night, a little bit later actually Sunday night. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the games. Take care, and God bless.